If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We are going to be continuing our series called 23 and Jesus. We're going to be working through um, this passage of Scripture today. We're actually going to read this passage of Scripture, um, verses 1 through 17, that we've talked about for a couple of weeks without reading the whole passage. Um, and what I want to do today, that first... Uh, that first Sunday, we kind of talked about the very first verse, the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1. Thank you, Jeff. Um, the very first verse of chapter 1 of Matthew, and we got an understanding of who it is that Matthew wanted to understand who Jesus was in the line of Abraham, in the line of David. Then last week, we pulled out the women that are listed there, the four women specifically from the Old Testament that are mentioned, and how they impacted our understanding of who Jesus is. And then today, I want to give an overview of the entire passage. Before we do that, though, if you're open to Matthew chapter 1... If you're open to Matthew chapter 1, say, I got it. All right, just, that's good. Turn left a page to Malachi chapter 4. How much easier for me to tell you to find Matthew 1 than Malachi 4? See, that's a trick I did right there. We are going to be in Matthew 1, but I want us to remember what's at the end of Malachi because it gives us an understanding of what is to come. And so Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 5, the very last couple of verses of the entire Old Testament says this. It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And he goes on to say the last actual verses If this, if you don't follow, if you don't do, if you're not going to follow, then judgment will come. But the point is that the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament spoke of this one who was coming. The phrase Elijah is used because he was considered to be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and that he would be a forerunner, a forebearer of one that was to come. And so the people of Israel had waited for 400 years. The expectation of the group of people that remained faithful to God in the midst of it was that there was one coming, a deliverer, a king, a savior, a messiah who would release Israel from its oppression. Matthew was written with a focus for these people on the king and his kingdom. Understanding this role of this deliverer in a little bit of a different way. In fact, he talks often about the kingdom of God, the king that would be there. He talks about the kingdom of heaven 33 different times in this book, which is only found here. Matthew is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He introduces that Jesus and his kingdom is the fulfillment of this promise made in Malachi chapter 4. So Matthew begins by introducing us in the gospel to the king himself, Jesus We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but in Jewish history, the most natural way to introduce someone was to give his genealogy. The passage we're going to read in just a minute may not be the most interesting passage you've ever read in Scripture, but to Jewish people that were reading this book and figuring out who Jesus is, it was vital. Other authors, in fact, Josephus, who was an ancient biographer, Jewish biographer, started his entire autobiography with his own personal ancestry list. 
It was vital. In fact, uh, King Herod the Great was despised by the Jews because he had some Edomite in his blood. And as a consequence, Herod destroyed all official registries of his ancestry so that nobody could prove he wasn't who he said he was. And he developed his own that was fake news. Matthew begins his book on Jesus by calling it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I read this week about a a pastor who was on a mission trip in India. And he said he was talking with some people and he had a conversation with a man that had become a Christian and was trying to start a church in his community. And he said... um, He said, when did you come to know Jesus? How did you come to know Jesus? And this Indian man said, oh, I came to know Jesus reading Matthew. He goes, really, what part of Matthew? And he said, Matthew chapter 1. He says, oh, the part about Jesus' birth. He said, no, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. He said, you came to Christ reading the genealogy of Jesus? The man said, yes. He said, when I read that, I knew it was true. He said, well, why did that have such an impact on your life? He said that for the first time in his life, he found a religion which was actually rooted in history in contrast to mythology. And the reason Matthew starts with Jesus, first of all, he's a real person from a real family that had traces it all the way back to Abraham. But Matthew wants to root his gospel in history, beginning with the image of the king. And the line of salvation. So here we go. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 1. You follow along with me to see if you think I don't pronounce these names correctly. And we have discussion about that afterwards, right? Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Breath. Next set. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, Josiah fathered Jeconai and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheltel. Sheltel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Elikim. Elikim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Matan. Matan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David until the exile were 14, and from an exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. All God's people said, that's not really what you said in your soul, but it's all right. All right? Name after name after name after name after name. 
When you read a passage like that, the question you have to ask is, okay, so what did this mean to the first people that read it? Why is it here? Why in the world would Matthew think the best way, besides tradition, besides that's why they kind of always started, what is he saying in the midst of that? And i got three things for you today, and here they are. First of all, the first thing Matthew teaches us through this is God keeps his promises. This genealogy, you may not be able to see it, I may not be able to see it, we may not be able to comprehend it, but the first readers would have understood that it is perfectly ordered, planned description of the history that led to Jesus' birth. Now it tells us in verse 17 how he planned it, how he arranged it. He says that from, ge- from generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David until the exile were 14, and from the exile until Christ was 14. Now, let me just say this. That is in Matthew's account of what's happening here. There is no way there were only 14 generations between each of those places. Matthew's not lying to us. Matthew, remember I told you the first week, he's doing a theological ancestry of Jesus and he's arranged it in a particular order with 14 between each one. Why in the world would he do 14 three times in that way? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, there are three groups of 14 in their understanding, the perfect number. Anybody know what the perfect number was for them? Seven, right? But not just seven, any multiple of seven. And so when they ask, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. That's two multiples of seven. That means infinity. And so there are three groups of two sevens. Three was also symbolic. Three made this understanding of fullness. And so when you think about it, like when the angels are gathered around the throne, you know, sometimes people kind of... Um, one of the things I think is interesting, sometimes people get upset about singing the same song again and again or even singing the same words over and over again um, in a song. You realize that almost every time we see angels gathered around the throne, they're singing the exact same thing over and over and over again for like eternity, right? What do they say? What do they say? What's the first words always out? Holy, holy, holy. Right? They say it three times because it's the fullness of it. It means not just once. If you say it three times, it means it is the fullness of it. Now, we've cheapened that through the years, right? we got people with catchphrases that do it three times. All right, all right, all right, like they do. And people think that's just cheapened. But biblically, when it's three times, it means it's full. So think about what we have here. We have two sets of perfection in their fullness. But there's another reason here. This is kind of interesting. In their time, there was this thing called gematria. Anybody ever know of gematria? Good. That's, you shouldn't, all right? What they would do is they would sign numbers to names based on the sum of the letters and the names, and it became important for them. And when you take the name of King David and you do his gematria, it turns out to be 14. Everything in Matthew points to Jesus as the line of King David. Why? Because of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 says, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father And he will be my son. Now this is talking to David. Do you remember David wanted to build a temple for the Lord? And the Lord told him, 
No. Why? Because you are a man of war. You have shed much blood. There was the adultery issue and it's all that stuff. There's all this stuff kind of in David's life that was there or coming. But God makes a promise to David and it's immediately fulfilled in Solomon building a temple for the Lord. But it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Where he says, he who will build a house for my name, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. There are a couple of things about this promise that we see in 2 Samuel. First of all, it is a purposeful promise. It is God is sending his son, sending Jesus to build a house for my name. What does that mean? He is going to spread the kingdom of the glory of God. That people will understand who God is and what God wants for them. That he's going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That he is going to rule forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. It is going to last forever and he, Jesus, will rule over it. There will be one from the line of David who is Jesus who will rule and it is a personal promise. It's not going to be some other guy that I pick. It's not going to be someone else. It's going to come from your line, David, but he will be my son and I will be the father. That is the promise that the people of God had held on to. You see, God had made multiple promises to the people of God. God had made multiple promises to Israel, to his people. And they had seen the ebbs and flows, the highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys of watching God work in through their lives. Their promises went all the way back to Abraham, which is where this starts. It doesn't start with Adam, because for the nation of Israel, the promise of God really started with Abraham. When God looks at Abraham and says, I'm going to call you from where you are. I'm going to call you who have a family with gods of foreign gods as the name of your family. I'm going to call you and out of no one. There's no reason for me to pick you, but I'm going to pick you. You are going to be a great nation for me. He tells him he's going to give him a son, but not just a son. He's going to give him multiple generations of sons that turn into a nation that will be a blessing to all nations. And immediately after God gives that promise to Abraham, we watched one of the most dysfunctional families in history try to carry on God's promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are a family that have multiple issues of, of, of immorality and lying and cheating and selling a brother. And eventually that family, as the nation of Israel is beginning to form, finds itself in captivity in Egypt. Because God had taken them to Egypt to save them from the famine that was coming. And one rose to the throne that did not know who Joseph's God was. He sends a deliverer named Moses, and Moses leads the people out of Egypt into what the journey to the promised land. But the people reject Moses and God's leadership. They wander in the wilderness until a new leader named Joshua leads them into the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, they splinter off into their different factions, and they soon begin to do, as Judges tells us, what's right in their own eyes. And they become one of the most wicked groups of people you can imagine. And these are the people that are supposed to demonstrate God's love and mercy and grace and power on the earth. And they are failing miserably in the midst of that. God eventually brings them back together other a man named Samuel who appoints a king because the people said, everybody else has got a king, I need a king. God appoints a king named Saul who is unfit for the job. Eventually replaced by David. David is the high point, is the high point of the history of the nation of Israel. 
When the people that would have been reading Matthew, when you asked them what was the greatest day in the life of Israel, they would have said the Passover. When you asked them what's the greatest time in the history of Israel, they would have said David's kingdom. But they couldn't keep it. And David's son Solomon compromises himself. His son Rehoboam makes it harder on the people than Solomon had. And so eventually this nation that's only the size of Vermont tears itself apart by civil war with superpowers ready to swallow them up all around. In 722, the Assyrians invade the northern part and destroy it. In 586, the Babylonians come in and take care of the southern part. And for the last 400 years before Matthew is written and Jesus comes on the scene before that, they are waiting, waiting, waiting and wondering, is God going to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham and to David? Matthew starts his gospel by saying, yes. The first 14 of these names people have talked about that you can group these 14 into three different understandings. The first 14 are the plan of God to establish a people. The second 14 are the judgment of God when the people fail to do what he called them to do. And the last 14 are the faithfulness of God to bring us to the place where Jesus comes. You know what I find interesting about this is my guess is if you're if you've been in church much at all or you've been around church that you recognized a few of the names in the first part. I mean, you recognize Abraham and Jacob and Judah and you recognize even Ruth and Boaz and Jesse. You even recognize some names in the second group with David and Uriah's wife. You know that's Bathsheba or King Asa or Uzziah like from Isaiah or Hezekiah or but my guess is most of you didn't recognize anybody till we got to the very end of that third one. I mean, we don't know the story of Elikim or Azor or Akim or Zadok, Eliud. And yet these unnamed to us, unknown to us, named in this genealogy are evidence that God is continuing to keep his promise. Even all the way back to Abraham. Galatians 3.16 says that the promise that was made to Abraham was about a seed, not seeds, because it wouldn't be people that would fulfill it. It is the one seed who is Christ who does. And so I know this Christmas season, sometimes you're in the midst of Christmas and you are expecting something and you're wanting something. But maybe it's not Christmas that you've been thinking about, that there's some promise that are out there. Some of you are waiting on God for something. You're waiting on an answer. You're waiting on a resolution. You're waiting on forgiveness. You're waiting in your life. And it feels like God is not working in this moment. The Israelites literally thought God did not seem to be working for three to four hundred years on the promise that he had established. But this reminds us that he was working from every generation to the next. From Abedad to Eliakim, from Eliud to Matayan, that he is working every moment of every day towards the resolution and the promise he has made. And he's working for you as well. God will keep his promises. The second thing we see in this passage of scripture is in spite of us. Man, there are some messed up people on this list. Some messed up people. 
Some of you in this room may think you're messed up. There are some people in this list that I don't, if you've done what they've done, we need to have some serious conversations afterwards. Some messed up people. I'm not just talking about the main people. I'm not talking about the headline people. I'm not talking about Abraham who tried to convince some people that his wife was his sister so that he wouldn't get killed for it. I'm not talking about Abraham that violated the trust of God after he left. I'm not talking about David who had a man killed and committed adultery and had his family, his own family, lead a coup against him to overthrow him. His own son took over his throne. I'm not talking about Isaac and Solomon that were disappointments coming from that line. Isaac, who was weak and is shown often only as feeble, or Solomon, who made compromises and had a thousand women in his life. We're not talking about the four women that we talked about last week, that all of them could have had shady past or did have shady elements of their past. Not just those people. There's a guy here named Ram that was a slave and lived his life in shackles. Manasseh, for instance, was a wicked king who sacrificed his own son to the god Baal and consulted mediums and spirits, and he's in the line of Jesus. Or even Amon, who was a man who was king that rejected God. Everywhere you turn in this list until you get to the end, we see people who failed to do what God called them to do. In fact, one says, you can look at those three sets as what I mentioned earlier, God's plan and God's judgment and then God's faithfulness. But they said you can also look at it from a human perspective as our failure. The failure of faith to trust God in the first set. The failure of God's leaders to lead God's people in the second set. And then the failure of God's people to rebuild what God had called them to rebuild. I don't know whether you know this or not, but if the salvation of the world was dependent upon you and me, the world would be in terrible shape. That, that did not get as hearty of an amen as it deserved. All right? We are weak and feeble people. We are people that will make the wrong choice more than we make the right. We are people who will turn our backs on God because we have multiple times every day. And yet God still uses us to accomplish His promises and His will. It is the most amazing thing about my life is that somehow God is able to take me, a broken, sinful individual, and use me for the glory of His name. Because it's sure in me. I know myself too well. I know you too well. At least some of you. And it ain't you. It's God. And this story, you know, when these people looked at this, I am sure that some of the Jewish people were like, they put Manasseh on the list. Manasseh killed his own son as a sacrifice to a foreign god that God explicitly told him not to do. They put Amon, he rejected God outright. They're the reason we ended up in captivity. Why are they on the list? And yet God continues to work. I've told you this multiple times in my 12 years with you. My professor at Union used to say all the time, the story of the Old Testament is that God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. He's able to make our failings go right. So God keeps his promises in spite of us. And here's the last thing and then we're done. For the salvation of mankind. There's a little note at the end of this. Actually chapter 
1, verse 16. And we're going to spend much more time. In fact, we're going to spend almost the entire time next week kind of unwrapping what this means. But did you notice when I read that everything sounded exactly the same almost? Right? Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah. Judah fathered Perez. Perez fathered... You get the pattern there? That pattern holds until when? Verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. Do you notice what word's not in there? Father. That's significant. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Because Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He took that role. He filled that role. He's a righteous man, admiral man. There's nothing wrong with him. But the point that Matthew is making is, yes, Jesus is from an earthly human line. Yes, Jesus identifies with us, but he is not exactly like us. He is separate from us. See, if it was just about a man who was born in this line, we in his humanity could admire him as a humanitarian. We could venerate him as a teacher. We could follow him as a leader, but we could not worship him as our Savior. If he was just like us, he could not pay our debt. He is 100% human, but he is not just like us. Verse 16 reminds us that not only is he 100% human from the line of David through Mary, but he is 100% God, born of a virgin from the Father. And because of that, We can be saved. You can be saved. We can begin again. And this is where Matthew is brilliant in this ancestry. He basically says, this is our past. This is what happened. This is who we were. This is where Jesus came from. But he turns that corner in verse 16 and says, but a new day is here. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not who you were. You are a new creation. In fact, it tells us that in 2 Corinthians. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation creation. Now what's interesting is in the original language there are two ways you could say the word new. Two words you could use. One was one that you probably kind of recognize called neo. So people talk about neo stuff, neo-orthodox or something's new. That meant like a new stage or a new phase or something new. You turned over a new leaf. The other word was kane which means off the assembly line, never used Brand spanking new. That's not the technical definition, but it's there. Can you guess which word is used when it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation? It's not the new phase when Neo it is kaye, meaning brand spanking new. Completely different. We can identify with the sins and the mistakes of those in the line of Jesus. We can see how he redeemed their story because they are in the line of the one who would come to be our salvation. And we can admit those areas of our lives and come to Jesus and because of who he is, be completely changed and completely new. And some of you here today have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never had that brand new, fresh off the assembly line change made in your life. Some of you are holding on to guilt. Some of you are holding on to your past. Some of you are holding on to something that happened last night. Some of you are holding on to something that happened last decade. 
And you're allowing it to eat you alive. And Jesus says, if you come to me, you can be brand new. Forever forgiven. And some of you need to, for the first time in your life, make that decision today. Some of you have made that decision, but you haven't symbolized that to the world by following him in baptism. It's the first step of obedience. We show people that, listen, that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am proud of that. I'm going to stand firm in that. Some of you need to do that today. Some of you need to be a part of a group of people that are working together towards trying to figure out what God's called us to do and ministering to the people around us. And some of you need to do that today. You need to join here at First Baptist. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And that response time is always open to anyone with that. Some of you are here, you're followers of Jesus, but maybe there's something that's got you held down, some guilt that's happening, some familiar sin that continues to invade your life, and you need to be set free from it. You need to be recharged for the glory of God. In a moment, we're going to have an, a time of response, and that's always available. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk to you if any of those decisions need to be made. But this is also the time of year, and this is the day, and this is the moment when we give our extravagant giving missions offering. Jeff's already mentioned today, we've talked about it the last few weeks, 100% of what's given in our extravagant giving offering goes outside of this church. Half of it goes to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that goes directly to missionaries. 100% of what goes to Lottie Moon goes to missionaries on the field. So so when you give today, whatever you give, 50% of what is given to the extravagant giving will go directly to missionaries on the field around the world. And then we split the rest of that among three partners. The Tennessee Baptist Children's Home that we watched a a video about last week that does great work with foster kids and kids that are in the system or kids that need a home, share Christ with them, put them back on a path in school and all that, help them to lead their lives for Christ. To the Club 180 ministry in Lynch, Kentucky that we have been so integral of being a part of and from the beginning... Terry and Angie Burkeen do such an amazing work in one of the poorest areas of the entire country. And then Journey Point Fellowship that's out in Denver, Colorado, Stapleton really, where we go um, during the summer. But that has seen, uh, I know when we were there this summer, they were averaging one baptism per week they had met. Now they, that's come back a little bit because once you start piling on weeks, that's harder to do. But I can guarantee you by the end of this year, they will have seen many lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 100% of what you give during a day of extravagant giving happens for that. And so as part of our response time today, I'm going to be standing in front. If you need to come for salvation, you come to join the church, you're here and you want to be baptized. That's never happened before. I'll be standing in front. I'd love to talk to you. If you need prayer, I'll be glad to do that. But during this time, we're also going to bring our offering. We just put it on the wings. We just put it over here. You say where, wherever you can find a spot, all right? We consider this a special place. Not because this wood is special, but because when we choose to meet with God and we dedicate part of our, part of our material possessions to the glory of sharing the gospel worldwide, we believe that God honors that and it is a holy place. So during this time of response, while we sing, while the band leads us, I'm going to ask you if you came prepared today to give for David Scraven Giving or if you can prepare in the next couple of minutes to do that and come and give. And you say, Pastor, what happens if I didn't come today prepared? Two things. You can bring it by the church office anytime this week. We're open Monday through Thursday. You can bring it by any time. 
Secondly, you can give online. You can go to fbcgillisville.com. There's a page on that. When you go to that page, it says giving. You click there, and there's a pull-down menu, and you can put Dave Extravagant Giving and give through that. I don't have a problem telling you that I want you to give as much as you can to this because 100% of this goes to spreading the news that the King of Kings is real and alive and is the answer to the sin problem of every single person on this planet. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. We're going to respond through giving and I hope if the Lord leads you, you'll respond by coming. Let's pray together.